The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has struck down OSHA's Emergency Temporary Standard, or ETS, that mandated vaccine and testing standards in the workplace as well. Data has come in that public policy is not working out as intended. Let's go take a look, everyone. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson here. After a short break, I was uh, traveling out west. Got a lot to report on there for my uh, faithful followers over at Peak Prosperity. But for here on YouTube, let's talk about now OSHA's uh, ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard, which had invoked uh, workplace rules or mandates for vaccines and testing. So let's go there. Also, public health policies really are not working. We're going to have to talk about that, and I'll show you what my logic is around that, because what is public policy in terms of health and what should be expected from it? Eh, we should have to take a look at that. All right, let's go here for starters. Let me get my drawing tool out. Good to be back with everybody here. So this was OSHA's website as of 106 today. Um, they still talked about their emergency temporary standard, and that was uh, you had to look really closely to find out that their emergency temporary standard had been stayed, as they called it, or uh, really a, there was a, a barring of, of uh, from the courts to enforce it. So the enforcement of this has been barred. What is this standard that we're talking about? OSHA had put out this thing under the beautiful standard number 1910.501. That's vaccination, testing, and face coverings. The part number here is 1910. Um, this was under OSHA standards and subpart U, COVID-19. Here's the standard number, vaccination, testing, face coverings, and it's got a little E um, electronic place to find it. So this is something that OSHA had put in place on November, excuse me, November 5th. And here was uh, the ruling. The purpose of this section was a quote in yellow, Quote, this section is intended to establish minimum vaccination, vaccination verification, face covering, and testing requirements to address the grave danger of COVID-19 in the workplace and to preempt inconsistent state and local requirements relating to these issues, including requirements that ban or limit employers' authority to require vaccination, face covering, or testing, regardless of the number of employees. So um, clearly some states had said, yeah, thanks, no, we'll, we'll, we got this, we'll figure out what's right for our citizens, and OSHA was coming forward, this is uh, through the Biden administration saying, yeah, no, we want federal uh, laws around all of this. So there's a bit of states' rights, federal rights going on around this whole issue, but I want to focus on that word grave in just a second. Note one to paragraph A, in blue, it says, quote, this section establishes minimum requirements that employers must implement. Nothing in this section prevents employers from agreeing with workers and the representatives to additional measures not required by this section. Uh, and this section does not supplant collective bargaining agreements or other things like that. So, hey, this is going to set the minimum. But if you guys want to go further... You know, then you can go further. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers, but the humor writer Dave Barry said that Puritans left England because they were seeking back in the 1600s to enforce more draconian rules upon themselves and were currently permitted under English law, <laughs> which was pretty draconian back in the 1600s. Anyway, love Dave Barry. So 
what is this grave, uh, grave danger that they speak of? So let's talk about this for a second. Grave is a dangerously vague word um, to play on their grave danger sort of uh, phrase there. But grave meanings from the dictionary. A, meriting serious consideration, so the grave problems, or B, likely to produce great harm or danger. Or C, significantly serious. So this has to be a very serious thing that's likely to produce great harm or danger. That is the standard they set here because they said they have to address the grave danger of COVID-19 in the workplace. So let's talk about grave real quickly. Remember, I talked about this a number of uh, weeks ago. This is a paper uh, that comes to us out of Stanford. This is from um, Catherine Axwis Fors and John Ioannidis. And so this paper really talks about what is the true infection fatality rate. So an infection fatality rate of COVID-19 in community dwelling populations with emphasis in the elderly and overview, big long paper. I don't have time to re-go through all of it. I did this in an earlier piece, but here's the punchline from that paper. And we have here a chart that's showing us the different levels of mortality, infection fatality rates, IFR, infection fatality rates, not a case fatality rate, but of all the people who get infected, whole population, let's say a million people got infected, how many people would die? And so it's by age across the bottom or x-axis, and here's the infection fatality rate up the y-axis. And by the way, I have to point out, this is a log chart. So here, this is point zero zero zero. One. So that your chance of dying is 0.0001, or said another way, your chance of surviving is 99.999%. And then it goes up here to 0.001 and 0.01 and, um, and so on. So we're just moving up uh, the, the chain here. So the question is, what's your chance of surviving? I've indicated these in blue. 99.999% or 99.99% or 99.9% or just plain old 99%. And by age, it turns out you don't really have that full 1% chance of dying until you get out here, which is all the way out there in um, in the more elderly categories out there. So this goes from uh, what do we have here? 10 years of age to 25 years of age to 35 years of age, 45, 55, 65. Okay. So you don't really have a chance of dying that that's significant until you get out into the 65 plus category. And by the way, is something I pointed out before is here at the 45 year line, there's a huge difference between what the Dominican Republic is able to produce here and what Canada has been able to turn in in this particular age bracket with that, with that, uh, yeah, that healthcare powerhouse known as the Dominican Republic, just crushing Canada here with more than a tenfold reduction in death at that 45-year-old age. What does that say? It says that if you're 45 and you come down with COVID, you're going to want to be in the Dominican Republic because your chance of surviving that is 10 times higher than it is in Canada. Now, why could that be? Well, the Dominican Republic uses these things called early treatments. They made no bones about it. Canada is busy uh, doing everything it can to block early treatments in favor of a vaccination-only policy. We're going to discuss that policy here in just a minute and show you that by the numbers, it's not really working out as intended or promised. So put another way, 
that grave danger that OSHA is uh, responding to here says that if you are, well, these aren't people who are of working age anyway right here. Uh, for the most part, um, these people are all uh, 0 to 19. So some of those are working age. But your chance of dying from COVID, if you're anywhere from 0 to 19 years of age, is similar to the odds of dying from a sharp object, uh, roughly speaking. So that would... Um, you know, I guess OSHA does have workplace rules around sharp objects, but still, if you're 16 years of age, you can go work in a restaurant and you could be a sous chef or a chef, depending on your skill level, and you would use sharp objects. Um, by the way, if you're 20 to 29 years of age, uh, the odds of dying from COVID are similar to the odds of dying from sunstroke, which is uh, not that high of a risk, to be honest. And going up the next 10-year age bracket would be similar to the odds of uh, dying from choking on food. Um, so again, as we look down this list, here's the thing that's really been missing from this conversation for most people is really, what are the true odds of dying? Now, we're going to leave aside morbidity, which is different from mortality. Mor morbidity is, hey, what are the consequences of getting COVID? I know long COVID is a real thing. People get really hurt from it. So we want to understand morbidity, but mortality as well is a separate concept. So this is just looking at the mortality. It's saying here that your chances of dying from COVID. First, we see the age risk stratification. It becomes a lot more uh, deadly as you go down and across that particular chart right there, obviously by age. So by the time that you get to 70 plus, your odds of dying from COVID are similar to the odds of dying from a, a chronic respiratory disease, which is significantly higher. But still, again, when we look at these numbers down here, um, this is still somewhere between two and two and a half percent, not insignificant. So still the point being made here is that we're looking for that age stratification, which runs out across that particular chart. So, but still, let's look at the true risk comparisons here, at least for this grave danger. Anybody under the age of 50, not that grave of a danger, all things considered. And that's what this chart is telling us here. All right. So carrying on, what did we see in this OSHA ruling? So this comes to us from the National Law Review. They parsed through this really quickly. The question is, well, what happens next? So with OSHA standing down for now, they, they uh, I'm quote, reading here, quote, with OSHA standing uh, down for now and the Fifth Circuit stay firmly in place, and other challenges pending in 11 of 12 federal circuit courts of appeal. So lots of suits got filed, um, lots, of, lots of legal action. The cases will be consolidated and assigned to one circuit court chosen randomly via lottery. Uh, so that lottery is set for November 16th, and it's, um, it's a significant thing. They say it's not a Powerball drawing but it is significant. So we'll see. It's a little bit of a lottery to see which circuit court that's going to land. And obviously, if you know anything about the law and how the courts work, judges are different. They're individuals. Um, and each of them has their own flavor and attributes. And some of them are, are much more conservative. Some are much more liberal. Some of them, um, they're, they're just individuals. So a lot's going to depend on where this lottery lands, uh, this particular set of rulings, and, and we'll see who is really going to be involved in um, making this next set of decisions. Continuing on uh, down here, quote, what should employers covered by OSHA's ETS do? Well, quote, while the ETS's future is up in the air for now, this does not mean employers should halt plans for compliance. That's uh, the opinion here of the National Law Review. 
Continuing, they say the announcement notes that OSHA remains confident in its authority to protect workers in emergencies. Now, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals actually took exception to the idea that this was and fell under the idea of a grave danger. So they're saying, OSHA saying, hey, we have a right to protect workers in emergencies. Is this really an emergency? Well, this really isn't an emergency for people of a lot of different ages. So that was part of the issue with the ruling that they had to look at was that it wasn't evenly applied. So first up, OSHA said, well, 100 or more employees, right? I guess it's not a grave danger if you have 52 employees, but it's a grave danger if you have 101. So there was an inconsistency there. And the second thing was around actually the graveness of the threat itself and how grave that danger actually is. And by the way, um, these grave dangers themselves are modifiable by the extent to which various countries and health systems are using early treatments and the extent to which people have things like vitamin D in their system, all the things we know about, all the things that you and I know are actually reasonable factors in this overall story that somehow OSHA's not really all that interested in. The FDA certainly isn't. CDC is not and all of that. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, however, did decide to uh, take up this particular challenge. All right. Continuing in yellow at the bottom, it says, quote, employers who are federal contractors or healthcare providers should not make decisions based on this Fifth Circuit order. Those employers are subject to different, although similar, federal mandates. They have the federal contractor mandate and the CMS Medicare omnibus staff vaccine mandate interim final rule. Oh, that's a mouthful. Uh, Both of those governmental mandates are currently being challenged, but at the moment have not been halted by any federal court action. So what's happening next is a little bit unclear. If you are under one of the federal mandates because you're a federal contractor or you fall under the Medicare omnibus effort, I think those places you should probably still um, act as if those those rules are are enforced and uh, enforceable. However, challenges exist there as well. So not entirely clear what happens next, but I will remind everybody that this idea of a grave danger is the thing that's being actually questioned here. That word grave is really critical. And the data right now, you'd have a hard time convincing me that this is a grave danger. It's certainly something that's significant and we should look at. But in terms of enforcing a mandate that would cause people to lose their livelihoods, that would cause uh, very significant impacts to livelihoods, businesses, the economy, I think OSHA has not yet made their case as to the graveness that they are seeking to uh, remedy. And the second thing they would not have done in this is demonstrate the extent to which the outcome of their policies would have somehow satisfied or ameliorated that grave threat. So let's go there for a second because we need to look at this because um, this is the same sort of a issue that's facing much of Europe at this point in time. We have a lot of new European lockdowns that are coming. This just announced recently that COVID-19 cases are rising dramatically across Europe. They're right here on uh, NBC News. And despite a widespread vaccine rollout with nearly 2 million new cases reported in the last week, the most in a single week, on the continent since the pandemic began, NBC News' Claudio uh, Lavagna explains which European countries are reintroducing lockdowns and what health experts in the U.S. are learning from the rise in cases. Just heard that there's new lockdowns, including a curfew after 12 o'clock 
going on in Ireland, which I believe has a 87% vaccination rate or something close to that. I might have that number slightly wrong, but it's very high. And I'm not clear why what happens after 12 o'clock. It's one of these crazy things where if you go out to a restaurant, you have to wear the mask until you sit down. Then you can take it off because, as we all know, coronavirus doesn't travel to people who are sitting or eating uh, or after 12 o'clock in Ireland. It's just getting crazy here. And people are really grasping for this. By the way, people are just a little bit tired of this whole thing. Here's the EU uh, lockdowns being very actively protested. Let's just take a look here. This was the angry reaction in The Hague last night as a new lockdown was announced amid rising cases of COVID-19 across the Netherlands. The Dutch Prime Minister telling his country the measures were inevitable and would be needed for three weeks. In Austria, a lockdown is being enforced just on the unvaccinated. Police checking all customers in bars and restaurants have been jabbed. And Germany is deploying 12,000 soldiers to help with vaccinations and testing. Scientists here are divided about whether we'll soon face a spike in cases after recent falls. Some are very worried. We're looking at Europe and seeing countries respond, uh, you know, uh, as they should to rising cases, whereas in England, the narrative seems to be, yes, we're happy with 40,000 cases a day. We need to be acting yesterday, not tomorrow. We're seeing some All right, so there's a lot more to that, but uh, you get the idea. Kind of interesting, though. One of those pieces that popped through there was uh, this idea of Austria declaring a nationwide lockdown, but just for unvaccinated people. So you can clearly see the pushes on to create those two classes and to apply as much pressure as possible so that the unvaccinated become vaccinated. Now, totally reasonable if there was a distinction between being vaccinated or unvaccinated, where the vaccinated were the ones who were no longer capable of catching or transmitting the virus, but those who were unvaccinated could, you could make a case for that, um, on, at least on some level, at least a public health policy level, maybe not an individual freedom level, constitutional level, things like that, different issues. But from a public health standpoint, Austria has decided to uh, throw down on the idea that if you just lock down the unvaccinated people, somehow this is going to be helpful. And in fact, here we can see uh, Austrian police uh, randomly checking for the vaccination status of shoppers. So this is what it looks like now. Uh, you would have the police checking for your papers, bitte. Uh, and I just, I would have thought that, I don't know, that in Austria... They would have been maybe especially um, sensitive to the idea of classifying people according to different statuses and uh, creating a situation where you would have to show your papers in order to freely transmit and travel through that society. Now, I know this is starting to look like I'm throwing down on one side of the story, and I am. I am throwing down on the side of logic. Obviously, I would have preferred all the way through this that if we were going to treat this as a complete health emergency, that we would have thrown every possible health and public health measure at it we could, which would have included a complete, never-ending, 24-7 wall of sound about not just early treatments, but preparing your terrain, that if we were doing that, if everybody had vitamin D kits and we had selenium and zinc and people were taking quercetin and all of that, if, if there was a, a national and international global effort to get people's terrains prepared as much as possible and get people vaccinated in order to limit these things. And 
we were actually vaccinating according to some triage where we said, well, people with natural immunity, hey, they have a case. Hey, people who have had prior bad reactions either to vaccines or to their first jab, they can be excluded. We'll keep them in a separate category as well. Uh, for people who are older or have comorbidities, hey, we're going to treat them more, more actively first. Listen, this is completely a situation which I think if we had that level of nuance and complexity, that'd be great. <laughs> There's no nuance here. The Austria is saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to just put lockdowns down now only on the unvaccinated is is not a public health um, stance I can support. So let's talk about public health. What do I mean when I say public health? Well, let's talk about public health. What are the goals? If you're a public health official, you're responsible for an entire population. What are your goals? I actually think there's just one. You're going to increase public health through various policies. Now, there could be sub-goals under all of that, but that's really it. That's you got one goal. You want to increase public health through various policies. And I'm a big fan of public health. I'm really glad that we don't have cholera in our water systems. I'm really glad we don't have open sewage in the streets. I'm really glad that we have uh, the kinds of, of surveillance methods so that we would know if there was an outbreak of something like bubonic plague or measles or something like that, that we would know what that is and how to track it and all of that. So we would increase our public health through various policies. Hey, I'm a big fan of doing that if they make sense on some sort of an adjusted basis. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's imagine for a moment that we said, listen, there's this thing that people do that results in 30,000 U.S. deaths every year and 10 times that many serious injuries that are life-changing. We want to stop that. So, okay, that sounds reasonable. What are you talking about? Well, we're talking about automobiles. You know, and worse, it's not just old people who are getting hit and, and clocked. In fact, we look at it, and the younger you are on this curve uh, in terms of driving, the better the chance you're going to get in some sort of serious accident. There's like a really bad accident cycle there through the first early years of driving. So let's just ban people from driving, right? That would be a possible health outcome. And the argument would be, look, we could possibly save 30,000 deaths a year and 10 times that many serious injuries that are life-changing. Sounds reasonable. But if we ran that policy and we discovered that people were starving because they couldn't get to work and maybe there were 100,000 people who died from opiates and, and other sort of, um, you know, alcoholism and other responses to being locked down and not being able to drive and having no freedom and, and then there was mental health issues, on balance you would say, looks like we're just going to have to live with the risk of 30,000 people a year dying from car accidents because the alternative is worse. There, that's the balance that has to be played out. And by the way, go ahead and tinker with stuff on this side. You know, use uh, uh, speed limits and uh, seatbelt laws and airbags and increase standards and all. There's things you can do to modify this if that's your concern. I get it. All right. But I don't think anybody listening to this or anybody who should be listening to this would get the idea that maybe it's a good idea to completely ban driving because we want to prevent all the terrible things that happen when people get in car accidents. Uh, we would say, oh, there's a balance there. And so we're going to live with that set of risks. All right. So the question of the day then is, are our public health policies, are they working? Let's take a quick peek. First, sub goal number one is going to be mortality. What we would want to see is that all cause mortality from our policies is working. So let's say there's an average number of deaths that we would see in any given year stretching back through time. And then we start implementing our policies. What we would want to see is we would want to see those deaths go down. All cause mortality goes down if our policies are working. 
If they're not working, all-cause mortality goes up. If they're kind of neutral, nothing changes. All right, let's take a deeper look here. Uh, get my drawn tool back. So this is cumulative all-cause excess mortality in the United States. The solid green line is from 2020. The solid blue line is from 2021. Obviously, it's not done uh, because this is being... Uh, uh, recorded right now in November. And so the data is clear and clean up through October as far as I had it. And then there's dotted lines down here, both a blue and a green dotted line, again, respectively for their years. Green is 2020, blue 2021. Those are expressed on a percentage basis, which you can see over on the right axis. And over here are the actual just numbers of excess deaths. Here's the punchline. In 2020, there was about a 13.7% increase in all-cause mortality through 2021. That was 400-plus thousand excess deaths. And to date, in the year of 2021, all-cause deaths are up 14.2% above where we would expect to see them. Um, so far, to date, about 330,000 excess deaths here in 2021. The punchline is that this blue line is higher at this point of the year than the green line was. So whatever our collective policies are for 2021, which includes vaccination, includes all the mask mandates, includes whatever all these other pieces are of the public health policies, we have higher all-cause mortality in the United States this year than last year. And last year, need I remind you, in 2020, that was the year of the pandemic. We didn't know much. It hit in March took us a few months to figure out how to treat it. Now we have much better medicine. In theory, with vaccines and better treatments, all-cause mortality, if COVID was a major driver, ought to have brought that number down. We would have wanted to see this blue line below this green line for this year. In fact, I would have wanted to see it below this zero mark. I would have wanted to see fewer all-cause mortality deaths this year than last year or perhaps any other year. So breaking this down a tiny bit more, in the 0 to 24 age group, well, and that's too wide of an age group for me. I, I think it's too wide of a, a band. Why? Well, because a 21-year-old or 22, 23, 24-year-old clearly can get in trouble and die from um, alcoholism or opiate overdoses or things like that, whereas a 0, 1, 2, 3-year-old kid, probably not as much. So kind of a wide age band. Hard to tell what's happening here. But regardless, 2020, uh, we saw about 2% increase in deaths, and this year, in 2021, so far, it's running about 4% above normal. Tragic, uh, but nothing compared to what we're seeing in the 25 to 44-year age brackets. And look at this sharp uptick here in 2021. It was trucking along at a pretty bad rate, and then it just really started to uptick strongly here somewhere between July and August. So about a 25% increase in 2020 and a horrifying 43% increase for 2021. Whatever's happening in this age group from a public health standpoint is a fail, F, a complete fail. It's not working. We should be timing out on this and asking ourselves some questions. What's going on here? We should be curious about this. The CDC ought to be answering this. Journalists ought to be asking these questions and demanding answers. Hey, CDC, what is happening here? What is going on? So it's here. This is where we're seeing that one of the bigger increases in all-cause mortality is in this age group right here, which, by the way, doesn't have all that much of a threat from COVID. Some, but not all that much. Certainly not as compared to some of the later age brackets. 
And as well, in the 45 to 64-year-old age range, we're seeing here a 17.6% increase in cumulative all-cause deaths in 2020. And we're seeing higher than that. We're seeing a 26% increase here in 2021 in this age bracket. Again, with a very sharp uptick showing up here. And we should be asking the question, well, why is that? This is the highest rate of excess deaths that we're seeing in this age bracket here of this 20-year age bracket of the entire pandemic. And it's, it's, this is, to me, a complete indication of a fail of public health policy in the United States. Not working. We should be demanding and expecting and getting better than that. It, as well, in the 65 to 74-year-old brackets, we're seeing the same thing. More deaths in 2021 than in 2020. Those are excess deaths, all-cause mortality deaths. Um, but not as much of a gap here in the 75 to 84-year-old age range. Um, this, these two lines are a lot closer together, an 11% increase. But so far this year, just about a 10% increase, somewhere around there um, at this particular stage. So not so much going on there. But by the way, when we get up to 85 plus here in the United States, we see exactly what we would have hoped to have seen if public health standpoint policies were working. And here we see exactly what you would hope to see in 2021. Excess all-cause mortality is hovering right around the zero mark, which means that within this age group, things look um, as if uh, they're working reasonably well. So what can we make of this? The possible explanations for that excess mortality in 2021 in that 25 to 65-year-old age range, what could it be? Well, Hate to say it, but we saw a record high uh, number of drug overdoses occurring between March 2020 and March 2021, 96,000. So that accounts for at least some of those excess deaths we're seeing. A lot of the people who die within uh, from drug overdoses tend to be within that age range uh, that we were just talking about there. Alcohol could be a contributing factor as well. Perhaps there's some vaccine-related mortality showing up in here as well. Certainly the VAERS database suggests there's something there to look at and... I believe that there is. There's signal in there for sure. So regardless of whatever the actual explanations are, and it could be many other things beside this, it's impossible to make the claim that our collective public health policies and efforts are do anything other than a failure and that they need to be reconsidered. That, in fact, we should be thinking through carefully what public health really means and what we're trying to achieve with it. If we set up this standard and says what we're trying to achieve is no COVID deaths, that's a very difficult standard. Before we were trying to achieve, don't swamp our hospital systems from COVID. That was a reasonable goal, but still not as complete as it needed to be because really it ought to be. We are looking to reduce excess all-cause mortality and morbidity. Now, that's the trickier one to get our arms around is that morbidity angle, but let's take a look at it really quickly if we can because that's our sub-goal number two, morbidity. What do I mean? Well, you know, if people have mental health issues that are life-limiting or altering, if they have... Uh, end up eating themselves to death or becoming very unhealthy because they're locked in their homes like they are in Australia with only an hour a day outside, you know, like a prisoner uh, allowed out in the courtyard. If you're lack, got, not getting appropriate sunlight, exercise, social connections, eating good foods, whatever the story is, those things can actually lead to excess morbidity. And as well, we know that these vaccines, too, they do have side effects for some people. I think it's about maybe 1% or 2% based on the data I have. 99%, fine. 1%, not so fine. So on balance, you would want to say that the excess morbidities that we're seeing as a consequence of our public policies, that those are lower 
than what we would see if we did nothing, right? Makes sense. So that's the logic I'm trying to pursue here. We don't have a lot of data to go on. We do have this one paper um, by Klassen that talks about the morbidity signal. And this is just uh, within the COVID-19 vaccines. The title here is proven to cause more harm than good based on the clinical trial data. Now, we know that this clinical trial data is not all that great because some of them were run in a very shoddy, if not substandard way. Uh, as well, we know that, that many of the signals were not accurately reported or collected. Lots of grains of salt for this. But given what we have, what did uh, uh, Bart Klassen find here in terms of all-cause severe morbidity? And I like this idea. He's looking at, he wants to analyze it using the proper scientific endpoints. So let's go there real quickly. Logic check true. In his introduction, in quotes, for in yellow, for quotes here, he says, for decades, true scientists have warned that pivotal clinical trial designs for vaccines are dangerously flawed and outdated. Vaccines have been promoted and widely utilized under the false claim that they have been shown to improve health. That's what they should do, right? Continuing on, quote, however, this claim is only a philosophical argument, not science-based. In a true scientific fashion to show a health benefit, one would need to show fewer overall deaths during an extended period in the vaccinated group compared to a control group. So that's the mortality argument. That's what we should see, right? Control group, vaccinated group, over time, fewer deaths if mortality is one of your key endpoints, and it really should be. And, it, and over time, you'd have to track it over time. Is it a day? No. Is it a week? Mm, no, it's, is it a year? You have, to, you have to have a reasonable period of time to track those two groups against each other. So that's really important. All right, carrying on, this is what the endpoints really ought to be. And by the way, uh, as you see here, it says less stringent, this words. I had to carry them over to this next paragraph so we could read them together at the same time. Quote, Less stringent indicators of a health benefit would include fewer severe events of all kinds, fewer days hospitalized for any reason, lower health care expenses of all types, fewer missed days from work for any health reason. No pivotal clinical trial for a vaccine preventing an infectious disease has ever demonstrated an improvement in health using these scientific measures of health, measurements of health as a primary endpoint. So think about that for a minute. Wouldn't you think if you were a FDA official or a CDC, like this would be the standard I would apply if I was in, I was like, listen, companies, you want to, you want to, um, you know, make billions of dollars selling vaccines. You got to show me something. You got to show me that by using them, we achieve X and we have to compare that to doing nothing, which is Y or the control group. And I want to see that X comes out better than Y on all kinds of things. But these primary measures of health should be things like that. Fewer missed days from work, uh, lower health expenses, for lower health care of all types, et cetera, fewer hospital days. You would think, wouldn't you, that wouldn't those be the endpoints that we'd, we would care about? I do. So uh, that's really what the endpoints ought to be. Carrying on in green, quote, Instead, vaccine clinical trials have relied on misleading surrogate endpoints of health, such as infection rates with a specific infectious agent. Manufacturers and government agents have made the scientifically disproved and dangerous philosophical argument that these surrogate endpoints equate to a health benefit. Now, as you remember, 
the end, the, what the endpoints are and, and what really the goals are of vaccination have been shifting over time. But Klaus, uh, Bart Clausen here makes a really, really good point. So here's the table looking at all-cause severe morbidity. In This is just the Moderna thing where they had 15,210 in the trial itself. They had 15,210 in the control. They followed each group up for 56 days. There were zero severe cases of COVID here. There were 30 here, and that's basically where the regulators started and stopped. They just said, oh, good, because our primary endpoint is how many cases of severe COVID did we have? Look, zero to 30, 100% effective. And that was what they were looking at. However, now we have to look at here, unsolicited severe adverse events are those that would occur within a seven-day window after the either the second shot of Moderna had been given or the second shot of placebo. You in the in the study group, you wouldn't have known which you had gotten. So unsolicited means uh, the investigators were looking for some sort of a severe adverse event within that window. And um, then solicited, look at all these here. Oh, maybe I got those backwards. Unsolicited is, is after the seven-day window. Sorry, solicited is within that seven-day window. Thank you. I think I got that right now. So here, look at this. The solicited grade three. So grade one is pretty mild. Grade two is a little less mild. Grade three is starting to get pretty severe. Grade four is very serious. Uh, Grade five, I don't know what that is, death or something. That's pretty bad. All right. Uh, Grade three, they had 848 compared to 361. Look at grade three after shot two, though. 2,884 compared to 341. Overall, total severe events was 3,985 compared to 943 for a difference of 3,042. The p-value of 0.00001. Very, very significant finding. So from an all-cause morbidity standpoint, you have to compare now. You don't just compare the 0 to the 30, which is what our regulators did. Look, 0 cases of COVID to 30. What you really need to do from a public health standpoint is compare the 0 to the 30 and as well the 3,985 to the 943. And together, it should be the sum total of the benefit of this and the harm of that all sort of weighed against each other. And that would have been the actual correct way to look at this data. So here's the conclusion from uh, in the discussion section from the Klassen paper here. COVID-19 vaccines, I'm quoting here, were released for marketing under uh, EUA, an emergency use authorization. Use of such a protocol should be reserved for outbreaks of life-threatening epidemics. If this were actually the case with COVID-19, then reduction in all-cause mortality should be the primary outcome for the vaccine trials, and all-cause severe morbidity should be the secondary endpoint. So are we saving lives? But then after that as well, we should also consider, well, what's the health outcome of people? Remember, we want to be healthier. So we want people going to the hospital less and having fewer complications and leading better lives and missing fewer days of work and spending less time in the hospital, all of that. So primary is mortality, secondary is morbidity. That's what he's saying here. All right. However, continuing to quote here, the manufacturers show no evidence of a survival benefit. That's actually the case. Deaths in the trials were extremely rare, and out of 30 deaths, out of roughly 110,000 trial participants, only about six were confirmed to have COVID at the time of death. Regrettably, the vaccines did not reduce morbidity, but caused an increase in severe events. 
Worse, the pivotal clinical trials were never designed to show a benefit in all-cause mortality or reduction in all-cause severe morbidity. Let me read that again. Worse, the pivotal clinical trials were never designed to show a benefit in all-cause mortality or a reduction in all-cause severe morbidity. Now, I understand why the pharma companies would do it that way, but why would your regulatory agencies allow them to get away with doing it that way? Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of public health? To reduce mortality and reduce severe all-cause morbidity? Those would be, to me, the points, but maybe I'm missing the point here. Continuing, quote, the fact that the trials were never designed to show these health benefits is an admission that those developing the vaccines never expected the vaccines to result in measurable health benefits. Regrettably, some manufacturers have published the false claim that the vaccine have been shown to be effective and that it's now unethical to withhold immunization from the control group. They advocate abolishing the control group by immunizing them. This unscientific act only further proves the pharmaceutical industry is unaccountable to anyone and does not feel the need to adhere to principles of science, ethics, or public health. Now listen, I have got a big, giant indictment for any corporation that would do things that way, and I understand what their incentives are, and the incentives are money, and I get it, but if you can't get past the money in order to actually advance things that are, on balance, overall helpful from your products... You're not a good person. I'm just saying that, and I think we all know who I'm talking to when I say that. But the public health people, if you're in the public health agency, that's your job. That is your job to watch out for these things and to be that firewall, to be the break between that conflict of interest from a monetary standpoint and public health. You are supposed to be the ones there in that line of fire, making sure, because that's your job, that these companies aren't doing things and rigging things and designing you know, trials to show this, but not what we really need, which is the larger public health benefit. So um, at any rate, that's how I see that. So let me just tell you, though, regardless, this isn't an anti-vax screed. I always have to sort of qualify that. I'm all about the data. I want the best outcomes for the most people. This is complicated territory. Your individual situation is a situation between you and your doctor or even you and yourself because you know your body best. Some people out there just simply know on some level or they have past experiences that say, this is not going to be a good candidate for me. Other people know, they just know this vaccine is right for me and I support both of those. So let me just talk about this. I actually think it's not my body, my choice. It's in my life, my choice. Some people choose to drink alcohol. I choose not to. You know what? I support both of those choices. Or some people choose to skydive. Hey, I've done it. Uh, Some don't want to. I support both of those choices, right? We could clearly say, though, drinking alcohol and skydiving, pretty risky behaviors clearly lead to worse outcomes for some people. You know what? Life is risky. So I support, I do, I I support anybody who wants to do that. You want to rock climb, go for it. You want to dive with sharks, go for it. Some people, hey, some people choose to overeat and have extremely poor dietary habits. That causes a lot of metabolic syndrome damage. I choose differently most of the time. I don't always make good choices, but I support people making their own choices. I don't want to control what you eat, when you eat, how much you eat. That's entirely up to you. No business of mine. And uh, finally, I would say um, some people choose not to, to continue to learn and to grow. I do. I'm constantly learning and growing. 
I support both approaches because you know what's best for you. Other people know what's best for them. It's not my business to figure out what's best for other people. So I really do believe that it is my, my life, my choice when it comes to certain things, particularly when it comes to things where the risks are not entirely clear. And the risks are going to vary depending on all kinds of factors, lifestyle choices, whether you take supplements or not, how old you are, whether you've already had a bad run of, of luck and you have uh, some poor comorbidities that are along for the ride at this point in time. Those are very different situations from people who have don't have any of those particular risk factors. Very different. So again, just, uh, you know, I believe in people making their own choices. So my conclusions for today uh, and by the way, part two of this, which is going to be over at Peak Prosperity, we're going to go a lot deeper into this, and I've got a lot of data that's uh, pretty exciting, and some of it's a little disturbing to go into. So we'll talk about a lot of that over there, and we're going to be talking about um, this particular aspect of things and how we're being nudged, and so uh, we will get to that over there at Peak Prosperity. So if you want to follow us over there, please come on by. For now, my conclusions for today, listen, we need to be having basic public health 101 conversations. We should be backing this up, back in the truck, way up, beep, beep, and asking the question, which is, what's the point? What, what are the goals? How are we going to achieve those goals? How are we measuring those goals? When we back it all the way up, I know there's a lot of data down there, and who do you trust? And oh my God, it says this study says it's working, this one says it's not. But when you back it all the way up and you ask the question, what does all-cause mortality look like this year compared to last year? We can say we are going in the wrong direction, and we deserve to know why. And, uh, and that would be, I think, an important public policy question. Journalists, you should be asking it. And don't let people like Fauci get away with not answering it. We deserve to know. Hey, your policies. Hey, Rochelle Walensky at the CDC. Hey, people at the FDA. Your policies in collective total are doing worse this year than last year. What is your explanation? And I don't want to hear... You're uh, say, I, I don't know. We'll look into it. You should know the answer to that. Your job. That's how it should be. All right. Vaccines and all other combined efforts have not reduced all-cause mortality. That's a fail. Vaccines have not been shown to reduce all-cause morbidity, although this study that I showed is not, it's not the be-all, end-all. It just looked at it within the context of the clinical trials for the vaccines. We need a larger set of studies to say, what are the health outcomes on a population basis for COVID itself, for the vaccines, and we need to compare them. That's why we need these control groups. Control groups are critical. Without a control group, you can't compare anything to anything. So uh, that's what we should be doing. In fact, in fact, it's possibly the opposite. It's possible that we're seeing a higher all-cause morbidity this year than last year. That's what some of the early anecdotal data is saying in terms of ER admissions, in terms of people uh, showing up with a variety of conditions like heart attacks, strokes, things like that. Um, but those deserve close scrutiny, and we deserve answers to that. Next, uh, OSHA needs to define grave, as that word seems not to mean what they think it means. Uh, and it's misapplied in their ETS mandate, and, and the Fifth Circuit agreed with that. So what is a grave threat? And I think um, it's pretty clear that in terms of an action, infection fatality rate, the IFR, uh, grave doesn't apply in this particular case. Finally, whatever your choices, hey, I support them. You be you. Listen, I, and I'm totally clear on this. People who said I'm vaccinated, I'm like, I totally get it. Made a lot of sense. It was the right decision for you. So other people have said it's not the right choice for me. I'm like, it's great. Not the right choice for you. 
that is the right answer in this particular case, is that people need to be able to make their own decisions about these things. I know that's a very unpopular opinion in terms of uh, the mainstream media. It's probably going to be a pretty unpopular opinion here with uh, on this particular station. We'll see how this goes. Uh, but I, I have to I have to stand for what's right. I do have to stand for what's right. And what stands what's right for me is that people get to have the right to make their own decisions. And in particular, people who've already been harmed by the vaccines should not be forced to get boosters. People who've already been harmed after the first vaccination. And it's not, not it, again, it's, it's a small percentage, but they do exist. They should not be forced as a condition of being able to have a job, maintain their mortgage and car payments and student loan payments and eat. They shouldn't be forced to sacrifice their health in order to continue those things. There ought to be some compassion, some latitude, some nuance allowed for people who've had prior COVID infections, people who have prior conditions, people who have reasons that are legitimate for wanting to make their own health decisions. And by the way, that should be the most primary right of them all. I believe that um, to be secure in our persons includes the idea of being able to make our own health decisions for ourselves, be those correct ones or incorrect ones. Again, you know, are we going to have a national mandate to shut down the Golden Corral because their buffet is just too, you know, uh, too attractive for some people to avoid? Well, maybe, but we're not there yet. All right. So listen, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. If you want to follow us over at Peak Prosperity or on any of these other channels and things down here and over there, please do so. If you like this, please hit the like button, share it with anybody you think needs to be shared with. Remember, as always, if it gets taken down at YouTube, and of course you wouldn't hear this if you were listening to this on YouTube and it wasn't here, but any of my material, if it suddenly seems to go missing, you will find me over at Odyssey. You will find me over at Peak Prosperity. We've got a whole new website launching fairly soon. It's going to be a, a much cleaner, faster, more brilliant experience over there. And as well, we're looking more and more all the time into how we're going to be running a non-censorable sort of a platform so we can bring you data like this so that you can make your own informed decisions because we do believe in informed consent all right everybody thanks very much that's all i have for you today remember come on by peak prosperity if you want to see part two of this and we will see you next time bye-bye